0: Hey, I hope you brought a Bible with you this morning. If you did, open up to the book of 2 Thessalonians. Keep your finger there. We're going to bounce out of that book and then back into it throughout the course of the morning. So just make sure that you keep your finger there. If you've been with us through this study and have been here the last week or two, you know that Paul has spent a lot of time in this book talking about prophecy, biblical prophecy kind of thing that we're talking about in Sunday school. But he is about to make a very pointed shift. He is going to move from the prophetic into the practical. He did the same thing in his first letter to the Thessalonians, and he does it again in the second letter. He talks about the second coming of Christ, but then he teaches us how to live in light of it. And that's where we're headed this morning. We need to get there. When you study prophecy, you need to always get back to the practical. If you were here last week, you might remember me closing things out with a statement from Warren Wiersbe. This is that statement. The purpose of prophecy is not to build a calendar. It is to build character. And that's part of the reason that we need to be extremely careful of anybody that would try to tell us a time or a day when Jesus is going to return. It isn't about the calendar. It's about our character. And when we understand that, we can quickly get to a place where we allow the second coming of Christ, our knowledge of it, our belief in it, what it does deep inside of us, we can allow it to shape certain things within us that become character issues, like these three how we study God's Word until He returns, how we choose to live until He returns. How we invest our lives until he returns. Those three things get shaped by prophecy. When it really lands on you and you really accept that Jesus Christ is coming back and you start living in light of it, these three things are impacted. They are touched by that knowledge. And that's what I want us to look at this morning. How these things, how our character gets shaped by the return of Christ and it is all very, very practical. Let me show you what I'm talking about. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Paul writes, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your heart and establish them in every good work and word. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Now, let's pray together, and we'll ask the Lord to give us wisdom. Father in heaven, as we get into this practical part of this second letter, we're asking you to grant us wisdom. We're asking you to guide us in our understanding. We're asking you, Lord, to use it to help shape our character in you. We're asking, Father, that you'll teach us, certainly. But we're really asking this morning that you will inspire us. And we're asking it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before we can get into the three questions that we just put up, the three ways that prophecy shapes us, here they are one more time. Chelsea, would you put those back up one more time? Before we get into those, we have to answer another how question. We have to take care of something first before these three things even matter. And it is interesting to me that it is a how question. I get asked this on a pretty regular basis. I know that Dini does as well and more than likely our elders face it pretty regular and if you have ever sat down with a non-believer that is in pursuit of a saving faith, you've been asked some form of this question as well. How does a person become a Christian? How does a walk with the Lord begin? Now, it isn't always asked in those exact words. It can take on a a lot of different appearances. In fact, that question can be framed up in things like this. How can I know God is real? How can I trust the Bible? How does faith work? How can I believe in God when I can't see Him? How does a person become a Christian? That's a variation of the same question how does this walk with God begin for somebody that's unfamiliar with it just to hear that you can enter into a relationship with the Lord in which you walk with him every day that's so overwhelming that a lot of people can't wrap their heads around it that is such a foreign idea, foreign concept that for a number of people that have never spent a minute in God's Word or a minute in faith-related activities or faith-related opportunities, it is so foreign that it just seems like he might as well be trying to explain how the sun gives light. It can be really tough. But it does begin with a how. And that gives us really practical ways to answer the question. Paul actually does that for us in 2 Thessalonians. Really, he does it in just two verses. We read them just a minute ago. He answers the question. But he does it in such a way that it can spring us out into other places in Scripture. And as we follow all of those paths, we will find ourselves somewhere along the way standing on holy ground, where we are understanding the deep things of God. And I want to show you that this morning. But let's go back into the passage we just read, chapter 2, verse 13. Listen again. I love the fact that Paul starts with thanksgiving. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ there it is it it's boiled down for us right there beginning with the fact that Paul is talking to believers so he says i want to thank you for what or thank god for what you have already obtained the relationship that you already have He's grateful for that among the believers. And among a group of believers, that really should be in our conversation on a pretty regular basis. We're bound together in Christ. Look what Jesus did for us. Isn't that the greatest gift we've ever received? Things along those lines. But once he gets through that, he peels away the layers of the onion to show us how salvation begins. Starting with this, it is necessary for us to understand that God loves us. He used these terms in 2 Thessalonians, beloved by God. God loves us. We have to understand that. Now, a lot of people are familiar with John chapter three, verse sixteen, and we should be, it shows up everywhere from church to football games. John three sixteen is around us all the time. Even people that are not familiar with church and have never been in church have heard John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. John three sixteen. But are you familiar with John's deeper teaching on that wonderful passage? It's found in his first letter. 1 John chapter 4. Why don't you turn there with me? 1 John chapter 4. There's the gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. And then there's the three letters of John near the end of the New Testament. So if you go to the book of Revelation, just start turning left, you'll run into those three letters. And we're going to go to the first one. 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now that takes John 3.16 to a whole new level. That takes what we learn and are familiar with in the Gospel of John and helps us understand it at a much, much deeper level, and it should. Once we understand how deep God's love goes for us, then we are well on our way to understanding what a walk with God looks like. But it is imperative that we understand first and foremost that God loves us. The second step along the way, according to the Apostle Paul, back in 2 Thessalonians, is really deeper than even that. This is it. We have to understand that God called you or that God called us. Now, back in 2 Thessalonians, we read, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. God called you. Now this is this is holy ground, folks. But you have to be willing to pay attention to it. You have to decide not to let it divide you from other believers. You have to not allow the doctrine of it to overshadow the truth of it and the holiness of it. And when you make that decision, You can stand in the presence of God. God called you. This is referred to doctrinally as divine election. God called you. Now, that can be really overwhelming to hear that, particularly when you look in the footnotes of your Bible. In my Bible, under this whole idea, there is a footnote in 2 Thessalonians that reminds us of this. This is the footnote. Some manuscripts say, chose you from the beginning. God chose you from the beginning, thus implying that God chose Christians. He chose His children from before the beginning of time, before clocks ever started ticking. God knew His children, fully aware of who we all are. That's difficult to grasp. It really is. I love the fact that Charles Spurgeon would make this statement about divine election. It's really good. I'm glad God chose me before I got here, because if he had waited until I got here, he never would have chosen me. That's, that's a good way of looking at divine election and the fact that God chose us before time began. And we can chuckle about that as believers because we know the depth of truth to that. If God had waited until I got here, he would have looked at me and said, mm mm-mm. So he chose me. He chose me before time began. But there are still struggles with this idea, with this doctrine. And they're simple, and I know you're thinking them. If God chose me, what about the people that aren't believers? If God chose every Christian, what about those that aren't Christian? Why why would God do that? Does that mean that God destined some to hell and some to heaven? Well, that goes against the Word of God, the will of God, and the nature of God. So when we get into divine election, the doctrine of it, we're going to stumble across that. And we're going to stumble across the Word of God, the will of God, the nature of God. And it's such a big stumble that for a lot of people, they never recover from it. They never get back to a place where they can stand on solid ground. So I want to show you a way to process that problem. It begins in John chapter 7, the Gospel of John. Now, when I say it begins, what I mean is what I'm about to show you begins there. This is J. Vernon McGee, the old preacher J. Vernon McGee's work on this issue. So I want to make sure that he gets credit for it. He starts in John chapter 7, verse 37, which reads very simply, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Everybody with me? If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. That is an open invitation to all mankind. Now, once McGee actually reads that passage of Scripture, or writes it in a lot of his different books and publications, he follows it up with this statement. The whosoever, the anyone, that wills are the chosen ones, and the whosoever's, the anyone's, that won't are the non-elect. Now, that's a simple way of looking at this idea of divine election. The whosoevers that wills are the chosen ones, and the whosoevers that won't are the non-elect. Now, McGee would go on to make this statement, and I like the way he does it. If you don't come, it's not because you aren't elect. It's because you aren't thirsty. That is, you don't think you need a Savior. If you are thirsty, then come to Christ. Now, that is a simplified way of looking at divine election. It says that God chose all of those that will come to him. He chose us before the beginning of time. So he did, in fact, know those that wouldn't come, those that would never be thirsty enough. But McGee, interestingly enough, says that not all responsibility for salvation rests on God. We have to recognize we need a Savior. We have to be thirsty enough to know that we need a Savior. And once we understand the simplicity of that, we can dive a little deeper into the doctrine of it. And in order to do that, all we have to do is go to the book of 1 Peter. If you want to join me there, 1 Peter chapter 1. Keep your finger in 2 Thessalonians. We're going back. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. The Bible says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, that's the doctrine of divine election. To those who are elect, that's divine election. Verse 2, he says, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. When you get into the doctrine of divine election, it's also been called predestination. When you get into the doctrine of it, you're going to discover that it requires the Trinity for divine election to work. It requires the foreknowledge of God the Father. It requires the sanctifying work of the Spirit, and we're going to come back to that in just a minute. And then it requires the sprinkling of Jesus' blood. The shedding of Jesus, the Son's blood. So we have the Father, the Spirit, and we have the Son. And all three are necessary for divine election to take place. But right now, in this moment, we're talking about God the Father. And it's this word foreknowledge that helps us understand all of it. God knew those that would respond, God knew those that would respond. And he knew those that would reject. There is nothing hidden from the Lord. There is an open invitation given by Jesus. All those who are thirsty can come to me for a drink. Anybody can. And if we reject it, it isn't because God rejected us, it's because we aren't thirsty enough. That's where the rubber meets the road. That's the way it works. That's what J. Vernon McGee would say. That's where the rubber meets the road. So that's how divine election works. It requires God the Father, His foreknowledge, and the open invitation that He would give. And then He sends the Spirit to draw all men unto Him, and He sent His Son to make it possible. Divine election. That's God's responsibility. Ours is to respond. Ours is to respond. And we have to. If we leave it solely on God we will fall short. We have to respond. You're not saved by works, you're saved by grace through faith. Not by works so that nobody can boast, Paul says. But you still have to respond. It's imperative. It is imperative even in divine election. So now, once we understand that God called us, God loves us and God called us, we get into the third part of this to answer the how question, how a person begins a walk with Christ. Number three, you have to understand that God saved you. And that happened through, according to the Apostle Paul and according to the Apostle Peter, we just read it in Peter's letter and we read it a minute ago in Paul's, it happens through the sanctifying work of of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Listen again. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit. Now, there are two different uses for the word sanctification in the New Testament. The first one is the one we're most familiar with. It's the sanctifying work of the Spirit when the Spirit convicts us of our sin and prompts us unto holiness, To live a new life. It's the transforming work of the Spirit. It's the transformation that takes place within the life of a believer. The Holy Spirit is responsible for showing us our sin, to show us when we're on the wrong path, and to bring us back to the right path. That's the sanctifying work of the Spirit in the first regard. The second one, and this is the one that few people recognize, the sanctifying work of the Spirit in salvation is to carry the invitation from God to the non-believer that they might respond to God's invitation unto salvation. It's the sanctifying work of the Spirit. He sets the table for that moment where we respond. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. If you've been around Libby Christian Church very long at all, you know that I was raised in a Christian home. I have wonderful, godly parents. My mother is in the presence of Jesus today, and my dad lives in Derby, Kansas. Wonderful Christian parents that I will be forever, literally forever, grateful for the fact that they raised me in the things of God. They raised me in the church. Born on Tuesday, I was in church on Sunday. My dad was an elder in the church. My mom and dad served in all kinds of different capacities within the church. A lot of people ask, because my brother and I are both ministers, if our dad was a minister. No, he wasn't. He was an elder in the church, but he and my mom together loved God and loved the church enough that my brother and I both said, we, we want to invest at a great level with our lives in the kingdom of God that's the heritage of godly parents parents you remember that you raise your children to love God and to love his church you teach them to love both to love God and to love his church and by the way I'll be the first one to admit sometimes as they're growing up that second one's not always easy sometimes you have to be the parent and say no you'll be in church here, yeah, I'm, I'm just going to get on a soapbox for a second. You can forgive me when I get off of it, but between now and when I get off of it, go ahead and be mad at me. One of the things that irritates me more than anything in the world is when parents of teenagers say, well, it's my kid's choice whether they want to come to church or not. Here's my question. Are you still the parent? Then it isn't their choice. So you tell them you will be in church and you teach them to love the church. Even when they don't want to, you teach them to love the church. Okay, now I'm going to get off my soapbox. (laughs) Forgive me if I offended you. Forgive me if I offended you. Now I'm just going to move on. Even though I was raised that way, it was still necessary for me to make a decision for Christ, to recognize that I was thirsty and want to come to Him for the drink of salvation. It happened at Prairie View Christian Service Camp along the Ninniskal River outside of Wichita, Kansas. I remember when the Spirit did it. He set the table for salvation there. We had an intern serving at our church, Wesleyan Christian Church, Wichita, Kansas. His name was Dirk Skates. Dirk was there with us, and, and he helped present things in such a way that I wanted to respond to the gospel, and Dirk baptized me before his internship was over. I can remember how the Holy Spirit set the stage. And I know that a lot of people sitting in this room that have responded that same way, not necessarily at a camp, but you remember that moment that you responded. When that happened, you were responding to the sanctifying work of the Spirit. That was the Holy Spirit carrying the Father's invitation to salvation. You opened it up and responded. You opened up and responded. I might say, for some folks, they've been given that invitation over and over and over again, and they just haven't responded. They didn't choose to come. They didn't see how thirsty they were. They didn't see their need for a Savior. Well, the Spirit's still at work, and He brings the invitation back over and over and over again. And prayerfully, hopefully, at some point, we choose to respond. We have to. We have to. That's the work of the Spirit, the sanctifying work of the Spirit. beautiful part of the Trinity that's often overlooked. We look at God the Father and we look at God the Son and we forget about what the Spirit does for us. Don't ever forget what the Spirit does for us. He leads us. He leads us to Jesus. And when He gets us there, oh my, everything changes. Well, once we understand how God saves us, through the Trinity, God the Father's foreknowledge, the Spirit's sanctifying work, and the Son's death, burial, and resurrection, His sacrifice on the cross, then we get into the next step in answering this how question. You have to understand the power of the gospel. You have to understand the power of the gospel. Look at this again, Second Thessalonians 2, verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. A lot of times when we come to the doctrine of of divine election or predestination, this question gets asked, why? Why, if God knew before the beginning of time, is it necessary for us to preach? Why do we have to send missionaries out? Because the Word of God is still the Lord's message that He uses along with the sanctifying work of the Spirit to draw people to His Son, that they will be covered by His blood and enter His kingdom. It's the power of the Word of God. Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says it this way, So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. So Paul says, you've heard the Word. You've heard it as it has come to you and you responded, and you responded. That's the beauty of it. That's how a walk with the Lord begins. You hear the Word, and the Spirit opens your heart to it and your mind to it, and He sets the table that you might respond to Him so that you can understand that He called you because He loved you. That's how it all begins. A walk with the Lord is unlike anything else we will ever find. Unlike anything else we will ever find. So we preach, and we teach, because when the Word of God goes out, the Bible promises us that it does not come back void. That's the truth of it. That's the gospel message. Well, Paul goes on then, once he has covered all of that ground, he goes on to say this, In light of all of that, and your knowledge that Jesus is coming back, then stand firm. Listen to how he says it, verse 15. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, when Paul says that he wants them to stand firm and hold fast, some translations say, to the traditions that they were taught, he is speaking of the Word of God. He's not speaking of man-made traditions. Things that have been handed down to us through the generations, or even traditions that just make us feel good. He's talking about holding fast to the Word of God, what they heard from Him in person or in His letters. Now, when Paul was writing to them, the Bible as we know it was just beginning to circulate. Prior to that, even within Judaism, For the longest time, it was oral tradition that made sure that the Word of God was passed on. In the New Testament, the Word of God was the teaching of Jesus and the apostles. People would hear it from their mouths, and then they would spread that message out. Well, then the Holy Spirit prompted the apostles to write down what God had given to them. That's how we got our Bible. The letters that Paul's talking about even to the church in Thessalonica, it's contained in our Bible. We got that because God prompted them to write it. Here's the way it works. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says, "...all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness." that's how we got it and so once we had it because God breathed out his word and the apostles wrote it down then it was spread across the land and here we are 2,000 years later standing on the truth of the Bible standing on the grace of the Bible presenting it preaching it that people will enter into a relationship with the Lord that's that's how we got it is pretty cool Now, if we look at the tradition side of it and we just think that all he's saying is you hold on to those things that man has created, well, we're going to stumble because man-made traditions become the tomb of the gospel. We have to be careful that we don't just hold on to those. If we were holding on to the traditions that I grew up with, or my wife grew up with, in the state of Kansas, when we built this building, we would have put pews in here. We would only be singing hymns. You notice this morning, we sang a a wonderful old hymn, but we also sang new songs. That's bringing together all kinds of different avenues to present the gospel If we were holding on to the traditions that I grew up with or Tina grew up with, all the men would be wearing coats and ties, God forbid, and all the women would be wearing dresses, and and that would be this tradition that we have to hold on to. And there are many, many others that fit in that exact same category. Traditions, a lot of them just make us feel good, and that's why we want to hold on to those. But Paul's saying, you just hold on to this. You hold on to this truth, and the other stuff will shape it, around it. The other stuff, it'll follow. In fact, Paul would go on and make this statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 22. He says, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings." I love how the Apostle Paul says, I can, I can redefine myself. I can, I can do new things in new ways. Jesus actually would teach that very thing in the Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 13, verse 51, we read this. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. Yes. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. We can't just hold on to the old ways that, that man says we're supposed to worship and approach God. When we do that, we're holding on to religion. We hold on to relationship with God by holding on to the truth. Religion, by the way, has never saved anybody relationship does relationship does so we hold on to the truth of god's word and we present it however we need to present it i become all things to all men so that by all means some may know christ paul says so we present the old and the new that's how we handle the issue of traditions So then, back in 2 Thessalonians, once we understand this command to stand firm and we understand that we have to do that by holding to the truth of God's Word, Paul goes on to say, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Then we have to pay attention to our works and our words. Both become a reflection of the relationship that we have with God, our works and our words. Now, let's just start with the second, and then we'll come back to the first, with our words. Our words become a reflection of the relationship that we have with God. If we will use them the right way, others can not only see the relationship, but they can... They can be led right into the same one that we have. In the book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul would actually address this idea of our words and how we use them. I like how he does this. This is Colossians chapter 4, verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person the seasoning of your speech matters so paul's talking about us seasoning our words with the things of god that others might hear the message of god Now, he's not talking about everybody having to be a preacher and stand up on a stage or behind a pulpit or even on a street corner. He's not talking about everybody being a missionary overseas. What he's talking about is everyone learning how to season your conversation with the things of God so that people can pick up on it. I don't know how many times I've been in conversations with people at restaurants that I've never met before and just listening to their conversation as they have seasoned it with the Word of God and their relationship with God. I've known they were believers. We've been out of the country with people and heard conversations seasoned with the Word of God so that we would know someone was a believer when we season it the right way, it not only connects believer to believer, but it piques the interest of the non-believer just by listening to the words of the believer. So here as Paul's talking about standing firm, he's saying one of the most practical ways you can do that is by seasoning your words, seasoning your words so that people hear it. That doesn't mean that you have to walk around screaming, I love Jesus, every time you enter a new avenue. Not at all. That's that's not seasoning. Sometimes that's offensive. Season your conversation. Learn how to do that so that people will know who you belong to. They will know that you are walking with the Lord. But he doesn't leave it just with words. He goes on to talk about works. In fact, he started with works. So let's just go back to that one. He says, pay attention to your works. And we have to. So I'm going to take you to another place in Scripture that you might see why that is so important. This is the book of James. James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith And not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So, we have to make sure that we are reflecting Christ in our words and our works. And when it comes down to works, understanding that works will never save you, but they become a reflection of your saved relationship with God, we can boil it down simply like this. you got to do something with your faith. you got to do something with your faith. So, do something with it. Activate it. Use it. God gave you spiritual gifts to help bring the body together as one that it might be as powerful as God wants it to be. You have spiritual gifts. You got to use them. You got to use them. And one of the best places to do that is within the church. So you come together in the church to utilize your gifts to advance the kingdom of God. The Lord had a plan for this, He had a plan for this. So you got to use your gifts. Anything less is to to look at the Lord and say, I know you gave it to me, but nah, I don't really want to. Use your gifts. Use your works. Let them become a reflection as you stand firm in your faith. By the way, people that are actively serving tend to be a lot stronger in their faith because they're using it than those that never serve. So serve. Use your faith. It'll help you stand firm. Paul, back in Second Thessalonians, would go on to say, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from the wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. When the Lord is faithful, He'll establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you're doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Paul reminds us, and it's a good reminder, it's not the only place he does this, the Bible all through the New Testament would warn us of it, and so would the old, that when we seek to draw closer to the Lord, we're going to be under attack. A guy named Gordon McDonald said it really well, when we seek to draw closer to the Lord, we need to expect that all hell will break loose in our life. And he's right, you'll be under attack. But when you are standing firm in the Word of God, and you are utilizing your works and your speech as a reflection of your relationship with God, you're pretty immovable. And when you are surrounded by God's people doing the same thing, you're pretty protected. It's a great thing. It is a great thing. But I know at the end of all of it, people still ask this question. It's the the question we started with. How is all that possible? How do I do that? That how question seems to always be sitting out in the shadows of Christianity and of faith and in of a lot of other areas of life. How, how, how? We'd really like to just get a list of how-tos in our faith, and we, we have them if we go looking for them in Scripture. They're there for us. If you're willing to dig in and you're willing to mind the answers out, You can find every one of them that you're looking for. But in this particular regard, how do I make sure that I am standing firm in my faith until the Lord comes back? How do I use my faith, my giftedness? How do I season my conversation? How, how, how do I do it? Well, I might offer to you that we go back to that gift of the Holy Spirit that God gave us just in the first regard that we're most familiar with. If you've already received His sanctifying work in salvation, where you received the invitation and responded, then look at the second work of the Spirit, the other sanctifying work of the Spirit, where He convicts you of sin and He prompts you to grow. All that really means is turn the Spirit loose. Turn the Holy Spirit loose in your life. There's an old myth that floats around that we only use about 10% of our brain. That has been debunked over and over and over again. Neuroscientists have shown through modern technology how that's not true, but people still hold on to it, believing that we only use about 10% of our brain and if we could utilize the other 90%, unbelievable, miraculous things could happen. Well, let's just set that aside as a myth that has been debunked. But here's a truth for you in the modern church and modern Christianity. I don't even know that we utilize 10% of the Holy Spirit. We kind of leave Him out of the mix. We seek a relationship with God the Father, and we know that it happens through the Son, but we we overlook the Spirit. Don't overlook the Spirit. The sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in your life, whoo, changes everything. Use the Spirit. Turn the Spirit loose. Turn the Spirit loose loose so that you can see what God does turn the spirit loose and if you don't know how man you get into the bible and look at what the holy spirit did you do your own personal study in the new testament about the holy spirit look at what the spirit does get in there take a look and turn the spirit loose see what happens why don't you stand and we'll pray together as we stand firm in light of Christ's return Father in heaven, it's so good that Paul was as practical as he was in both these letters. Thank you for prompting him to move out of the prophetic realm into the practical. Thank you, Lord, for that. So glad you did. And Father, as as we look at the practical aspects of our faith, We can see things that we excel at and we can see things that we need to work at. That's true for every one of us. But as we see both, Lord, we need to see your Spirit. So I pray you'll open the eyes of our heart that we might so we can rely on Him and trust Him. For some, that means they need to respond to His work in salvation. And for others, it's in transformation and growth And Father, for still others, it's for the sustaining power of the Spirit. Whatever our need is, I pray that we'll respond. We already know you'll be faithful, so I pray we'll respond. Lord, right now, I'm praying for those that want to begin a walk with you. I pray they'll respond. I'm asking it in Jesus' name. Amen.